Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So what an incredible guest that we have today. I mean, the journey is remarkable. I think that you're going to find it quite inspiring. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Raiken Cool. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, honored to be here. So Raiken, I know that the that the upbringings, you know, were a little bit, uh, you know, shaky to say the least, you know, especially with the moving and and being, you know, ending up in a in a trailer park. So tell us about being born in Cincinnati, and then how was that shift and that transition into into northern Massachusetts? Yeah, born in Cincinnati to a policeman and a nurse. They divorced when I was five. Um, my mother remarried, and we moved up to the uh, Boston, Massachusetts area when I was uh, eight into a town called Norton, a smaller, maybe like more upper middle class town from my perspective, because we lived in a trailer park, we didn't have any money. And so I saw a lot of things in that trailer park that really shaped my life and the way that I see the world, I think. I think a lot of the people and the families who were in that, that trailer park were there for a reason, because of personal choices, is what I mean. And I saw a lot of uh, drug addiction and alcohol abuse and family abuse, uh, physical abuse, and um, one thing I knew is that I wanted to get out of there. I wasn't a very popular kid because of the trailer park, I think because of my financial status, which seemed to be really important at this school. Um, and so, but I had a lot of time to study then and I got great grades. Uh, I got myself into the US Air Force Academy. I got the congressional nomination from uh, my my senators and I got in and um, and that's where I went for four years. Uh, and that was my escape really from from that trailer park was getting into the Air Force Academy and, and joining the, the service. And obviously the trailer park, you know, has been and is a big driver for your success. You know, something that that keeps you, you know, moving always forward. So I guess for you, that experience, how do you think it has shaped uh, who you are today and 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 how do you look at it, you know, and how it has been, you know, like really that influence? that has, you know, fueled that ambition of, you know, just, just looking ahead and putting a gap into whatever you're seeing in the future. When I got to the Air Force Academy and, and, and actually graduated from there, all I ever wanted was to live in a real house because <laughs> I had lived from a trailer park to a dorm and I just wanted to live in a real house. That was like my biggest dream. 
and I, you know, I rented my first house uh, as a second lieutenant in the in the Air Force, and uh, that was like a, a big goal to me. But I think as I've gone on in my life, I've realized I continue to run from that trailer park, and I continue to just fear that I'm going to go back into that kind of financial situation. And so um, it really drives me to do anything I can to uh, to succeed. And a lot of times that means um, being smart, being entrepreneurial, finding ways to uh, be self-sufficient and make money. I, you know, I don't think, I think at this point I can safely say I'm not going to end up in a trailer park, <laughs> but I swear, I still think of, uh, of life in those terms. And so I think it drives me, you know, it, it, it's driven me through school. It's driven me, you know, through college, through law school, um, and definitely in my entrepreneurial life, all the activities I've done, I've failed a few times uh, entrepreneurially. Um, and now, you know, I believe I have a hit here with Lee Slock. Good stuff. Good stuff. And, and in your case, you became an officer. You know, that was nine years of your, of your life that you spent serving. And, uh, and I understand that definitely one of the drivers, you know, that, uh, that prompt the transition, you know, out of the army was what they call the, what is it that don't, don't ask, don't tell what, what, what is this about? Yeah. So, um, I did, I did, uh, get out of the military voluntarily when I was allowed to in, in 2001, I had spent nine years in the service. I got out as a conscientious objector to don't ask, don't tell, because I realized while I was in the service in the air force that, uh, that I, I was gay. I didn't want to be gay. I mean, I think, if I could have taken a pill to be straight for many years, I would have paid any amount of money for that pill and taken it because I just didn't want that to be my life. Um, it's been a journey just to accept myself for who I am. But one of the things in the Air Force that I realized is that I didn't have the camaraderie that uh, everyone else had because I couldn't bring whoever I was dating to like, a, you know, the the Air Force picnic or the company picnic or to any outside events, I couldn't talk about my private life. And I realized everybody is talking about their private life. You know, they say, oh, your private life and your work life are separate. It's not true. Your private life is very much a part of who you are. And I had to like always be silent or lie about it. And that didn't sit well with me. So I got out. I was one of you know, many airmen and soldiers and um, sailors who left the military to escape that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, got out. Got it. So getting out, obviously, you know, was a, one of the, one of the events, you know, part of that sequence of events that, that ended up, you know, really incubating, you know, what we became Lock. But before we get into Lock, when you were at a bar, you know, there was an, an event definitely that changed the course of everything and that got you into TV. So what happened there? Yeah, after I got out of the Air Force, I was uh, teaching AP physics at a high school, and uh, and I had taken a job uh, as a flight instructor, uh, teaching people how to fly at our local airport in Hawthorne, in, in Los Angeles. I was at a uh, like a restaurant bar, and a guy walked up to me and said, "We're casting for this show called The Amazing Race. You look athletic. Um, do you have like a friend or a brother or a father, or someone who looks like you?" You know. And I said, yeah. And so uh, the the guy that I was actually married to at the time, uh, not a not a uh, legal marriage, but we had like ceremoniously married. 
we went and we did the show together. And this is in 2003, God, like 18 years ago now. Uh, and we ended up winning uh, the the whole race around the world and the million dollar prize, which um, was exciting. And it set my life in a new direction because uh, I started getting asked to do hosting and television shows. I ended up uh, doing Frasier and the Drew Carey show. I went on soap operas. Uh, I took acting classes. Um, I hosted a lot of shows. And um, for nine years of my life, that's what I did until I moved uh, to New York in 2010. I did. I moved there to do a play and another TV show. And thank God I did because that's where I got denied for an apartment uh, in New York City. And um, I got a chip on my shoulder about it. I got into the apartment with a co-signer, a friend of mine, uh, but I got denied the apartment because I didn't make 80, 80, 80 times the monthly rent the year before my tax return. Uh, and that definitely changed my whole life, as you know. But why, why 80 times? I mean, 80 times sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And the, the leasing office said, well, the building next door requires 120 times the monthly rent. So we're, we're, we're lenient. Uh, but no, this was like a, you know, $3,000 a month apartment. And I had to make $240,000 on my tax return the year before I hadn't, I hadn't made it. Wow. So then obviously, as they say, you know, ideas, you know, they're like buses. They pass, and then they also, you got to get in. But but as they say, too, I mean, they take time to to incubate. So once you got that idea, obviously one thing that you did as well is is you call your agent, and you told your agent that, you know, that was it for you on TV. And then, and then you know, obviously you get this idea, and it seems more like business, you know, type of uh, path, the one that you're going to go after. But you went into law school. So... So why law school out of all things? Yeah, so getting denied for this apartment changed everything. I started researching all the risk instruments that were being used in multifamily to protect themselves from renters who might default on their rent or cause damage, which is what they were trying to protect themselves from with the ADX rent. And I started using my brain again. I decided that uh, I really wanted to use my brain. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I decided the time was then I was going to go back to law school and I was going to uh, get this business idea going. So to test my hypothesis that there was really good risk out there with renters that didn't need to pay 80 times monthly rent in New York, I put up a little website and I called it Lease Lock because I had seen a LifeLock commercial um, and I wanted a lease name. And I, uh, I put on this website, I'm a complete stranger, but I will co-sign on your lease for you using my good credit if you pay me. And I got hundreds and hundreds of applications from people. I mostly helped uh, people from foreign nations who had moved to the U.S. with great jobs or you know, great prospects, and they didn't have U.S. credit. Uh, so they couldn't, they couldn't get an apartment. So I said, I'm a citizen here. Let me use my credit. I'm going to help you, a, a person from a foreign nation, get into your apartment. You have a great degree. You have savings. You have a family. I know you're going to you know, be, be okay. And they would pay me up front. I was charging 10% of the full lease value for the year, but they had to pay me up front. And I picked 12 people in my first run. And I co-signed on $400,000 in leases in about a week. 
which was super scary because I didn't have $400,000. I collected $40,000, 10%. It was the most money I'd ever made in one, you know, in a week in my life, obviously. I would wait every month and I would kind of shit less of a brick every month that nobody defaulted. And at the end of the 12 months, none of the 12 people I picked defaulted. They all were great. Wow. And I got to keep the money. And I decided to do it again uh, the next time. And I doubled the number uh, to 24 people. And um, and it worked again. And nobody defaulted. And my my point was proven. There was really good risk out there. And so I decided to take my idea to Mucker Capital out in Los Angeles because I had moved out there for law school. And uh, Mucker was the incubator that took me in. And they liked my idea of no longer Riken co-signing on apartments, but let's turn this into an insurance company uh, that can insure the likes of big multifamily uh, leasing corporations and make it so they no longer have to charge security deposits to people. We'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll charge a small premium to the property. And if a renter defaults on uh, rent or causes damage, we'll pay the bill. And if the property wants to pass that cost onto the renter, they can through fees or whatever. But we're a you know B two B company, and we're we're gonna insure the landlord so that they stop harassing the renters like this, like I was harassed. Um, and so there's no more co-signers, no more guarantors, no more uh, shady surety bond companies. And so that's that's how it went. Mucker introduced me to my co-founder, my now my co-founder Derek Merrill. Uh, who was already working in the insurance space and had a startup of his own um, that he was working on. He loved the idea. Uh, we met a couple times and we knew that we were going to be partners. It was great. We were a formidable duo. Um, he knew everything about stuff I didn't and I and vice versa. He knew about like marketing and uh, raising money. He taught me everything I knew about raising money in the capital markets. Um, and he was, uh, very attuned to, uh, engineering and operations. I was very attuned to the foundational parts of starting a company that he wasn't the legal work, the compliance work. How do we set up an insurance type company and, and what type of insurance uh, company should it be? So, uh, we built this while I was uh, all through going law school. And then after I graduated law school, I was practicing law. Uh, and moonlighting with Lease Lock and just building it every day with with Derek, and, and um, now that's the company we have today. And one thing that uh, was a pivotal moment for you guys was to the decision that you made to stop billing the renters. So why did you decide to do that, and what was the impact of doing so? Yeah, so um, in Lease Lock, like 1.0, what we were doing is having the renters pay for the the fee that would you know create the premium for the property and we got really smart and realized that all of these big properties that we were working with were using the same software systems um to manage their rent and their occupancy and those were like you know yardy real page mri um and we realized that we could go ahead and charge the renters this deposit waiver fee using charge code billing. Um, and that's when we no longer had to have leasing agents at leasing offices selling our product or even explaining what it was. 
properties were so excited about it, they just made it automatic. They said, okay, we're not going to even uh, offer security deposits as a choice anymore. If a renter really wants to pay one, they can, but the default will be lease lock, where a renter just fills out their application online. And as soon as they're approved, whether they're approved or conditionally approved, automatically uh, charge code billing would kick in and the renter would get charged this small fee every month on top of their rent. Um, and then that fee would be, you know, go to the property and the property would pay their premiums to us. And we also did that with electronic billing. And then this, it was like a flywheel. Suddenly we had an amazing product that was selling itself on its own. As soon as we signed up a property and plugged them into our API, uh, we were, you know, that's when we started making like going from like tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on a monthly basis. So then, so then let's talk about for the people that are listening to really get it. I mean, because obviously there was like multiple iterations. What ended up being the business model that we know least lock, you know, for today? Yeah. So today we're on our fourth iteration. We call it least lock 4.0. And what that means is that in the past, the way insurance has worked is that the policy itself, and this is like even your car insurance policy, the policy itself and the language inside that policy, meaning the restrictions and the conditions and the exclusions, those, those uh, carve-outs are driving what the loss ratio is going to be for uh, the insurer, right? So there are certain things you can claim and certain things you can't and reasons that you can claim them and reasons that you can't. And those are keeping losses down for the insurer so that they don't have to pay out you know, so many claims. And so what we've done at LeaseLock is we've taken our old policy and we've completely wiped out all of those exclusions, uh, all of those conditions, um, all of the deadlines for filing claims, all of the, just basically everything that was holding back the claims process in order to try to drive loss ratios down, we've gotten rid of all that. And now the way that we're controlling loss ratios is through artificial intelligence, AI. And I know everyone's throwing around the word AI uh, right now, and there's not a lot of real AI out there, but I promise what we've built is a real AI risk engine that uh, goes through 10,000 scenarios per night on every single account that we have, uh, learning and figuring out what the losses are going to be based on the losses of that day for that particular property. And using that information, that data, to change rates, insurance rates, and change what the coverage limits are going to be on the next run for that particular customer or property. Um, we are a non-admitted insurance product. Uh, there's admitted and non-admitted. Neither is more or less regulated than the other. So it doesn't mean a lot uh, on the regulatory side. We're a very highly regulated product and company, but non-admitted means that you pay a separate surplus lines tax on every lease lock we sell in order to have the freedom to change our rates and uh, change our coverage and change our policy language without having to uh, have that approved by a, like a state regulator who has no idea what our business is. 
So we are by choice a non-admitted surplus lines product that pays uh, you know, big surplus lines taxes on everything we do, but we like that freedom. So what we are able to do with that freedom is use that AI risk engine to change rates and coverage. And that is what keeps our loss ratios down and low and keeps our reinsurance groups that reinsure our product happy. Got it. So then in terms of, um, you know, I assume that that for building this, you know, and for scaling up, you know, it requires money. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? So uh, we just closed a uh, $52 million Series B. Um, so on top of that, another $10 million Series A, and then about uh, $2 million before that. So uh, we're about like, yeah, together, my, my partner and I have raised about $68 million. And in terms of, you know, the size, to, to give an idea to the people that are listening, I mean, anything that you can disclose, maybe number of employees or anything else? We're rapidly approaching probably about 85 employees right now. Uh, so we're getting, we're getting bigger. Um, and it's just like, you know, all of the teams are expanding, especially right now. Uh, claims is expanding in a big way. Uh, claims operations and claims handling. Uh, and a lot more engineers. When I talk about this AI risk engine that we're continuing to build and optimize, that takes a lot of engineers, data scientists, um, actuaries, uh, and 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 people with th that kind of expertise. Uh, marketing department's growing, obviously, and and then client success. That department's growing rapidly as well. Every department has to. I mean, our legal team just we're just a growing company that's. Um, you know, that just needs more and more, more, uh, people, but we're getting to that like sweet spot, right? I don't think Derek and I want to have more, many more than a hundred employees, a hundred uh, team members, because, right. uh, you know, we want to, we want to solve our problems with technology, solve our problems with, uh, data and, and be that kind of a company, not that just keeps growing with the number of employees, but grows with better technology. Absolutely. I mean, right now, the name of the game, I mean, people, people talk about their success in terms of um, number of employees or the amount raised, but ultimately, the ultimate metric is revenue per employee. So I think that the way that you're thinking about, you know, optimizing and, and, and really implementing technology is, is just fantastic. So, so imagine, Raiken, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of lease lock is fully realized. What does that world look like? A world where LeaseLock is fully realized is where uh, LeaseLock has fulfilled its mission to really fundamentally change the way leasing is handled in uh, multifamily rental units, um, where properties have the choice of using a security deposit if they want, but also have the choice of using this new kind of lease insurance. Uh, lease insurance is a name that we made up at LeaseLock and, and that we coined. Um, and to be able to use this lease insurance model um, in order to drive their bad debt down, increase their lease conversions uh, on a day-by-day -day basis, and ultimately, because of all that, every property that uses LeaseLock has increased their NOI, their, their net operating income, um, on, a, on an annual basis. And that's, that's, that's what rings true about our, our program. Uh, LeaseLock if a property, any property just takes what they're doing now, gets rid of security deposits and plugs in our AI risk engine, they're guaranteed to increase their NOI on an annual basis. 
that's meaningful. And that's what our AI risk engine is geared to do. When you, when you talk about what does our product actually offer, it offers that value to uh, an operator, a, a property operator. It, it uh, increases their NOI at the end of the day. And that's what everybody wants. And that's what we're trying to do for them. That's the product we sell. Very cool. So one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, if I gave you the opportunity to get into a time machine and we bring you back to that time where, you know, you were, you, you were thinking about maybe like building something to really address that issue that you had seen of, of being asked 80 times, you know, the, the amount of rent. And you had the opportunity of giving yourself one piece of business advice before launching the business. What would that be and why based on what you know now, Raiken? Um, it would be to think bigger earlier. Um, you know, I started this thinking I just wanted to create a little side hustle that would put an extra $150,000 in my pocket, you know, a year. Um, but it was such a bigger idea than I than I thought it was. And I think I think a lot of entrepreneurs get an idea in their head and they don't give it enough credit or give themselves enough credit to to understand how big it could actually be. There's a lot of money out there that's ready to be invested in really good ideas and and maybe even medium mediocre ideas that are being brought forth by really motivated people and motivated teams. And so I just wish that I had realized all that earlier and 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 knew how big this was going to get and and could have gotten probably even earlier if I had understood and had been thinking that big about about the pro the product. And then this is going to be the first time that I do it, you know, and, and that is going to be two more bonus, you know, opportunities to, to be able to speak with your younger self. So the one before, you know, building the business was, you know, the time where you were leaving the army and, uh, you know, the military and, and obviously you were dealing with the, you know, don't, uh, uh, what was it? The don't tell. Don't, don't ask, don't tell. tell. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell. What would you, what would you tell that younger self that is looking to, to accept, you know, yourself, you know, the way that you are. I was super scared when I got out because of don't ask, don't tell. And I remember the last time I took my uniform off and knew that I wasn't going to, didn't have to put it back on like ever to go back to work. And I definitely broke down that night and I was super scared about where my life was going. But because I made a decision to honor myself and honor who I really am, Things have worked out and it hasn't always been easy and it hasn't been fast, but you've got to have authentic relationships. I didn't have authentic relationships with my comrades in arms, right? And so I wasn't happy and I didn't really have authentic relationships in my Hollywood life. I felt like I was, I, th I feel like Hollywood intrinsically is a place where you like always fake it till you make it. Yeah. And so the things you say and talk about, I don't think are authentic. But when I went to law school and I had friends in law school and I was just like happy to be like back in class, um, you know, in my mid to late thirties and just like developing all these friends, like those were authentic relationships. I was being me. I was doing what I wanted to be doing. And in lease lock, uh, from meeting investors to building lease lock with my team, I'm always authentic with my team. Um, they know who I am. They know where I come from. They know, they know my my insecurities. I wear I wear I'm the kind of leader that's 
and, and founder that's always worn everything on my sleeve. They know uh, what my weaknesses are because I tell them um, and I know what they are. And so it's all about authentic relationships. And so that's what I would tell my younger self is do and go to places uh, where you have those, those kind of relationships. And what about if we go even earlier in time to that time where you were in the trailer park and you were obviously dealing with everything that was around you and then also with perhaps, you know, all these kids in school that were looking maybe at you differently for, for, for living in that trailer park. I mean, what would you tell that younger Riken? Well, I thought I was like one of them, you know, and I, but I had a little voice in the back of my head or maybe in my gut telling me, this isn't who I am. I can break out of this. I can, I can get away from this. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. Um, and I don't know if I trusted that gut back then, but now I would tell that younger self, trust your gut. You're right. You're right. Don't fall into what these people are. Don't, don't make this your identity. Don't think that you'll never break out of it. Um, just trust your gut. And oh my God, do I use that at least lock? I use it in hiring. Um, I'm the last person that uh, every hire at Least Lock has an interview with. Everyone sends them to me because they want Riken's gut check. Even if I have no idea what it is that they do, uh, you know, if they're a controller or like an engineer or something, and I don't really know the technical problem that they're coming on to solve exactly or how they're going to, I know what they're going to solve, but not how. I'm not, I'm not as smart as they are in their particular category, but I always get a gut feeling about somebody um, just by interviewing them or talking to them, even on Zoom. Um, and so I trust my gut. And I think everyone uh, else at least locked us too. So uh, just sort of curiosity to expand on that. What is that process of listening and trusting your gut to make the right decision? Um, be natural. Uh, when you're in an interview process with someone, if you have a question that pops up in your head or in your gut or in your soul about what you want to know about them, just ask it. Because it's better than asking a lot of douchey interview questions that you find off the internet. Right. You know, really just like let it flow. Ask them a few things about themselves and then keep asking them questions that are interesting to you or that are interesting about them to you. And through that, like that interaction, that's where you're going to get that, that real authentic feel for who somebody is. That's amazing. So, Riken, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, they can uh, they can reach out uh, and say hi on uh, by email. I, I'm available at uh, Riken at leaselock.com. Uh, R-E-I-C-H-E-N at leaselock.com. I get a lot of email, but I'll get to it eventually. Amazing. Well, Riken, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you. I, like I said, honored to be on here um, and uh, happy to come back someday if you'll have me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.